Hello, this is Stephanie. And this is Brian. Welcome to our podcast, The Making and the Remaking of a Codependent Mind. We started this podcast in the summer of 2021. That's right. The episode you're about to listen to was released in July 2nd of that year. And at that point, we were about a year, a year and a half or so into our investigation into codependency. Yes, as you're going to hear in this podcast, I had a lifelong struggle with relationships. I'm in my 40s, and our relationship is my first happy, healthy, romantic relationship. But even given that, and even though we were in love... And we're still in love. We're married at this point. We're married, and we're still in love. (laughs) Absolutely. But early on, we started having problems in the relationship, ones that put it in pretty serious jeopardy. And I made the commitment... And we made the commitment together to get to the bottom of what was going on with me. And this podcast is a result of that work. Not just a result, a continuation as well. You'll be able to hear how we kind of learned as we went along in the podcast. It's been personally enriching for both of us and even deepened our connection. And hopefully you'll also notice that we get somewhat better with the podcasting side of things, like the sound and the editing. Yeah, we didn't really know what we were doing when we started. I should say that this podcast is not a program for recovering from codependency. Everyone's journey is going to be a little different. What this podcast is trying to say is I've been there, deep in codependency, deep in despair. I found my way out, and I hope you do as well. Maybe the path I took has some lessons for you and can offer you some hope and direction. Again, welcome to the discussion, and thank you for listening. Hello, this is Stephanie. And this is Brian. Welcome to our podcast, The Making and the Remaking of a Codependent Mind. This podcast is about one man's journey through codependency. So the origins of the codependent behaviors, the damage the codependent behaviors did in his life, and then how he eventually was able to understand those codependent behaviors, and through that understanding was able to heal both from the codependency and from the trauma that was at the root of it. And that man is you. That is me. I am Brian, the codependent mind. (laughs) A codependent mind. A codependent mind. And this is our first episode. In this first episode, we're going to be talking about what we mean by codependency, first of all. Right, because there's a lot of different uses of that word. A lot of misunderstanding, I think. A lot of assumptions based on just the word alone of what it means. And so not just that, but just kind of just a basic definition, some explanation of what we're talking about specifically, and then getting into the origins of how it formed for me specifically. And then in later episodes, flesh out various behaviors that we tie back to codependency. Yes, because there's a lot of kind of related behaviors that sort of work together to make the codependency deeper and stronger and tougher to, to recognize and get out of. And each episode will be that format where we'll go back and forth between your own story and what we've learned about codependency. Why don't you read the definition, the kind of working definition, the high-level definition that we're, that we're going to use? Sure. So this is, this, is, this is how we've come to define it. Codependency is an imbalanced relationship pattern where one person assumes responsibility for meeting another person's needs to the exclusion of acknowledging their own needs or feelings. The codependent person usually has low self-esteem and will wind up denying their own identity to some extent when they attach themselves to another often controlling, manipulative, or abusive person. And we should say here, we're using codependent as an adjective, you know, a codependent mind, the codependent person, 
but we are not ascribing codependency as an intrinsic trait. Right. It's not like they're tall. You're right. not codependent like you're tall or you're an introvert or it is not a, a personality trait. It is, again, a, a relationship pattern, a collection of behaviors. Right. And also, we're not seeing it as some kind of diagnosis mm-hmm. either. You know, like for one thing, it's not even recognized. Actually, it's not It's not recognized as, a, as an actual behavior disorder necessarily but we don't it's not really relevant to what we're talking about here anyway this is a collection of behaviors this is a so it's not necessarily a recognized behavior disorder but it's disordered behavior yes <laughs> and when it, it is so prevalent in your life when it was so prevalent in your life we we were calling it codependent right you 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 were in a state of codependency yeah because the behaviors that made up the codependency were so pervasive really almost every relationship in your life. It becomes a habit, just like like any other habit. It becomes, you become completely accustomed to this way of behaving and thinking. But we want to avoid, and this is something that you've worked on, saying things like, I am codependent. Right. Which suggests that it's, again, some sort of intrinsic trait to who you are, mm-hmm. which is not and we're just learning to cope with that or something. Like we're learning to accept the fact that right. I am codependent. That's definitely not helpful, we've found. Anyone can fall into codependency and anyone can get out of codependency. It's not a life sentence. As we found with you. As and, we found and, and as, we'll, as we're going to explore in this, in this podcast. Mm-hmm. So working with that definition, again, it's an imbalanced relationship pattern. And what we see as key to how we are you going to use codependency is one person assuming responsibility for meeting another person's needs. I think that's really what we find to be at the heart of codependency. Right. Which is not always what other people place as critical to codependency. I mean, I think the the correct definitions usually at least somewhat hit on the fact that someone is caretaking for right. someone else. I mean, that's, right. that's a given when it comes to codependency. But I think there's, there is a sense people that just don't really know at all what it means are thinking that codependency just means there's two people that are dependent on each other. A lot of that issue comes from the word itself. Yes. <laughs> codependency. So which is probably actually not that helpful of a word, but it comes out of it comes out of addiction literature. It started back in the 1950s with Alcoholics Anonymous when it came to the partners of the alcoholic. So you have the the dependent person, the person that's dependent on drugs or alcohol. And then you have the codependent, the person that becomes dependent on helping the addicted person for whatever reason. They, and this is, this is where it starts to open up and like, why is this person doing this? What, what are they getting out of caretaking? And, and enabling the dependency. So, yeah. I mean, dependency, even in the context of Alcoholism has a problem. You know, there's always been this struggle for how to describe this phenomena. There's a physical and a psychological and emotional dependency. All of those things can happen when you become dependent on drugs or alcohol. But, you know, we also talk about it as an addiction. We talk about it as a habit. We talk about it as a disease. And all of the, all of those, uh, that, that question of how to understand drug addiction, dependency, habit are equally problematic when we talk about this cluster of behaviors that is now falling under the term of codependency. So with us, the core important theme here is that 
the codependent person, the person with the codependent behaviors is just somehow gets sucked into this pattern of meeting other people's needs. That's it. And then it comes down to who are these people that they're finding that they're needing to, to meet the needs of. And in my case, and in a lot of people's cases, that is a person that is has their own habitual pattern of needing to be taken care of, needing their emotions to be regulated, needing their needs to be met by someone else, by an outside force. In my case, it was abusive, narcissistic type people. So, I mean, this is why where codependence, the term codependency becomes problematic because you, you weren't enmeshed with people who were dependent on drugs and alcohol. You right. were enmeshed with people who wanted their needs met. Well, we're going to get into a lot of specifics of the types of relationships that I had in, in later episodes and the additional behaviors that came out of those. But at a, at a very basic level, the abuse dynamic is the, the most important key in the codependency that we're talking about. So trauma, abuse, and then this dynamic of one person having all the control in the relationship and the codependent person, me, giving over all of my control, my identity, my agency, and then the behaviors that I came up with to cope with the shame and everything that came out of those kind of interaction. So there absolutely there are people who get enmeshed with drug and alcohol abusers and they may be classified as or see themselves as codependent. They may be dependent on that dynamic for their own self-esteem. But we're we're kind of doing a broader swath. There's there's always a, a spectrum when it comes to the severity of behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I think when we're talking about codependency, we're we're it crosses this line into this maladaptive behavior pattern that takes over the life. People that do caretaking for whatever reason here and there, because it's just their relationship goes that direction or something. As long as those people recognize what they're doing and they make an effort to get out of that dynamic, then it's it's not quite the same. With a codependent person remains unconscious. And as you're saying, it's about the effect it has on one's life. Yours really interfered with almost every relationship that you formed and put you in situations and relationships that were toxic to you and, and abusive. So the use of maladaptive is key because Mal it, it's right. be behaviors that, that don't actually deliver anything to your life. They don't give you satisfaction. They don't give you, they don't get you love. They don't get you intimacy. Right. They get you the opposite of all of those things. At some point, the behaviors that the, the origin behaviors like we'll get into started because they did work. They were a coping mechanism to get through trauma in my case. But then the fact that that trauma was never explored and understood and realized, then those behaviors just became maladaptive, as you said. They, now I'm just doing these behaviors because everything reminds me of the trauma. <laughs> Childhood trauma and then the, the, the lack of, of communication and, and intimate communication with any other people, basically. So I, these behaviors were formed. I formed these behaviors myself to cope with this situation and never communicated that with anyone and didn't properly form healthy emotional reactions and just took it from there and constructed this whole way of dealing with the world through that trauma. Hello, this is Brian. I wanted to let you know that I wrote a book based on the first two seasons of this podcast, and it's now available on Amazon. It represents my most current thinking on both the origins of my codependency and the healing process. 
I think it's a good companion to the podcast. Um, so if you're someone who also likes to read as well as listen, uh, you might want to check it out. The link is in the show notes. So let's hear more about this dramatic relationship that you feel is the root of your codependent behaviors. Sure. Okay. I mean, b- before I get into that, I do think there's probably multiple sources, you know, observations and, and, and different people in my life that may have contributed to it. But I see this one particular friendship from my childhood as being the main source, particularly because it's the source of the trauma and what I think really led to most of the codependent behaviors. So it was this childhood friend. It's, I met him in kindergarten and we were friends until fifth grade. So about five years. This kid was kind of, I saw him as sort of a school, school bully. How did you meet? We met in kindergarten. We were just, we both were not into playing on the playground, really. So we were playing in indoors, just like with some toys. I think it was like a kitchen set or something. And we just sat down together and just started playing with this kitchen set. And, and then just gravitated towards each other and just started hanging out exclusively, pretty much like immediately. So you were, and you were a young kindergartner. Yeah, I was especially young. Yeah, I was a, I was the second youngest in in my whole school, basically in my class. You were four. Yeah, I think I was four when I started, and most people were five. So he was your first friend in school. He was my first friend, right? Because I went to preschool before that, but I didn't keep in touch with those people. And those people went to my elementary school. So you know, this was the first kid I met. It was like maybe on the third day of school or something. And then those first two years, we were in the same class. So in kindergarten and first grade, we were in the same class. But then. I don't really remember much bad happening in those first couple of years, really. I mean, I was really young, but the teachers saw something. There was something about the way we behaved when we were together that was disruptive. They called what they said we were disruptive when we were together. So they separated us every every year after that. We were not supposed to be in the same class. Look, there were always two teachers for every grade and they put us in a different class. That was the only, I don't think they ever did that with anyone else. That was just us for some reason. I don't know if they told our parents that or why, you know, I really don't know. But pretty quickly, by by par- partially through first grade, probably, but definitely second grade, um, these behaviors were coming out in this guy that I would say were psychotic. I mean, it he was the way he like verbally assaulted and teased and, and just kind of emotionally manipulated people, but then also didn't seem to have any empathy attached to it. Like mm-hmm. he would do things that clearly like really hurt people and then just walk away completely just whatever with a smile on his face. Like didn't seem like something that, you know, it was just like giving him pleasure. It was just like, I don't know, you know, it just, he just seemed insane. Right. And he would, and he would direct a lot of that towards you. Yeah. So I would be, it was this kind of double thing going on where I had to witness him doing this to other kids, but then also he turned it on me constantly. So, cause we were together a lot, not just at school, we hung out, after school, I'd go to his house. We were in Cub Scouts together. He had a lot of access to me. And these behaviors were directed towards me. There was a lot of verbal assault and a lot of physical assault. And I didn't know what was going to cause it. I never, I couldn't, you know, I'm just constantly in fear. Like, when's the next time he's going to get upset about something and start hitting me or, or verbally assaulting? And he would also be telling you that you were his best friend. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were definitely supposed to be, you know, that was the image that we were giving off. Every now and then he would bring in other friends into our group for temporarily and then throw them away in a really horrible way. But I wasn't allowed to bring any friends. I wasn't allowed to have any other friends. And so besides this, these kind of this daily fear of being abused, there was also these, this kind of 
he did gymnastics and he wanted me to try to do the gymnastics too. And I knew I couldn't do it. Tricks on the bars or like flipping off of swings and stuff like that from high up. And I really didn't want to do it. I was scared. I knew I was going to get hurt because I was constantly getting hurt. But it was either that or make him upset and abuse me. So I went ahead and just tried to do the tricks and just sure enough would always get hurt. <laughs> so it was just like every day, like, what's he going to do today? What's he going to make me do today or something? You know, so it was kind of this slowly chipping away at my my agency and my identity, you know, because I also didn't feel as though I could suggest anything to do. Like, let's play with toys or whatever. Like I, it's, he didn't want to do any of the, the things that I wanted to do, but I just tagged along. He'd be making fun of people. I'd be st- I'd just like, like the, the toady, the classic toady or something from the, from the. So he, he had all the power. He had all the power. So what, what, what did that feel like? What did that look like when he's, he's abusing or attacking other, other, kids, other people, other kids? Well, I mean, I have a couple of stories that could illustrate that, I mm-hmm. guess. There was one, one kid in particular. I, I don't know what his, cause he didn't attack everyone. It was just strange. You know, I don't know how he chose to attack certain kids and not others, but there was this one kid in particular that lived on a street that I was friends with that was in our Cub Scout pack. We carpooled to school. This guy, G, I'll call him, is the friend. He was, he was in that carpool too. And every day, this other kid, we'd pick him up and get in the car and, and he'd just say, you stink, you stink. Just like, just relentlessly, like saying how much he stank and stuff for the drive to school. And you could just tell this kid just didn't know how to react to it. And it was just making him feel not good about himself. But in this one particular time, we were walking around the neighborhood and this kid comes over with this new big G.I. Joe vehicle like it's this kind of large thing and he was so proud that he got this and he was all happy about it and he's like look what i got look what i got and i don't know why he <laughs> felt safe bringing it over to to me and and this uh, this guy g because what happened was that g just grabbed it out of his hand just threw it on the floor and just broke it into a million pieces and then the guy just kind of shied away and started to walk away and this i just felt so overwhelmingly bad because i could see him start to tear up and stuff and i just when when g turned his back i just gave him like a really quiet like i'm sorry i'm so, like apology and then just cont- followed g back to his house um that's just one one example of one particular kid that he picked on if you had if you had other friends you, you were in a vulnerable position yourself because g would punish you but also you had to then watch g attack those friends as well right so i mean there there was a, another one that's these two girls that we hung out with that i i don't know somehow we we formed this club and uh we bring gifts to each other and things like that at one point one of the girls wrote him a letter and mailed it to his house and it said, you know, I have a big crush on you and, and stuff like that. And I was over at G's house when he got this letter and he read it and he was just like laughing at it. And he's like, this is so ridiculous. And he's like, I have to, I have to write her a letter back. And so he wrote this letter back that was like the most horrible, insulting, like you're the ugliest girl I've ever seen. I, I would never, ever want to like go out with you. Totally pointless. Like why, why? He just wanted to hurt her. He just really wanted to hurt her because she said she liked him. And it was just bizarre. And he went and hand-delivered it to her house. And uh, I tagged along. You know, I watched him write the letter. I watched him give it to her. <laughs> and we walked away. And, and I saw her the next day. You know, she's crying. And yeah. So w- one thing we should kind of mention is this seems to be before there was such an awareness in schools, for instance, about bullying, because here you tell these stories, you wonder where are all the parents <laughs> in right. this situation? Yeah, 
including where were, where were your parents? Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's like hall monitors or, or recess people, and but there's just a lot of kids. You know, but you know, I, someone was in the car when. Oh yeah, right. That's someone true. was in the car when G was insulting. Yeah. Your other friend and yeah, uh, you know, your other friend had parents, and mm-hmm. when he came home with his toy broken. And, Right. Did he say this anything girl to his had parents? parents. <laughs> right. My, Did they ask her why she was crying? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, were there ever any incidents with your parents that you would have anticipated that they would have responded? There was there was one in particular that that stuck with me and and kind of caused me to hold on to some resentment because clearly I did not tell them what was going on, but I feel as though they had plenty of opportunity to see. I feel like he was on a little bit better behavior when he was at my house, mm-hmm. but he wasn't at my house very often. I was usually at his house and, and, uh, his parents just kind of were not around. And I, I, his dad seemed strange. I was kind of scared of his dad too. So I d- don't really know what their dynamic was. Their family, dy- he was an only child, mm-hmm. but so I, there was this time we went to his family's cabin and it was just a miserable time. Basically he was kind of picking on me and hitting me like a lot during that trip. And, and then this one Probably because he felt he had you kind of isolated. Yeah, I think so. And we did dangerous things like that he wanted to do that I just, as always, he just wanted to do dangerous things that I didn't want to do. Like, like sit down on this blanket and slide down the stairs. And there was like a wall at the end of the stairs. So we'd Mm -hmm. hit the wall. He was okay getting hurt, I guess, but I wasn't. And, and then we had stuffed animals was what we played with the most. And, and about how old were you at this point? When we went to the cabin, Mm -hmm. um, it was maybe three years into the race, maybe third grade or something like that. Seven. Yeah. And so we had these stuffed animals and he pretended like they were alive, which I never, that's another whole story. Like that goes into, I could never tell if he was being serious or not. Like if he actually thought they were alive or he wanted me to pretend like I believed they were alive or something, but his, we were both carrying our favorite stuffed animal and he accidentally dropped his into the river and it floated, floated away and we couldn't get it. And he grabbed, mine from me which was an alvin doll from alvin and chipmunks and he threw it on the ground this was your favorite stuff this was my favorite stuff damn we just we uh somehow he got he had mine in his hand he threw it down i think when he was in the fuss of trying to get his and uh and then when we came back he's like oh alvin's dead listen he's not breathing he's dead we have to bury him he's and i don't want to bury my favorite stuffed animal like but you know i had to and so we did and i no longer had my alvin and i went home and when I got home to my house, I was just so relieved and happy to be home and not on that trip anymore because it was just horrible. And I started crying the second I saw my parents. They had some friends over. They're sitting in the backyard. And they said, oh, what's, what's wrong? And I said, I have a headache, which is a really weird kind of adult thing to say because I think my mom got headaches all the time. Mm-hmm. So I said, I have a headache. And they said, okay, go, why don't you go up and lay down, you know? And that was it. That was the, that was the only reaction, not like, really a headache and you know why are you crying you know and they didn't follow me up to see if i was okay or anything they just kept hanging out with their friends and and that was it that was the last i heard of it they didn't ask me how the trip was or anything mm-hmm. and so i just thought that seemed like a little extreme to just kind of let that go well you know? it kind of probably also reinforced your sense of powerlessness yeah right that i didn't really have anyone i could you know like i already felt unsafe telling anyone about it but mm-hmm. now i especially went like well <laughs> now I really don't think I can tell anyone about this. So yeah, that was just one other example of. So how did you eventually get out of this relationship? So it it finally just because ended. You felt stuck. 
I felt stuck. I definitely felt stuck. And actually, I have to say, I did start to tell people about it. I told two kids at school about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one friend I had in class and I told him about it and he's like, oh, I wish I wish you can hang out with me and my friends and stuff. But I think he basically acknowledged and understood that I was stuck. It was like he was kind of just like, well, and you can do, you know. And then this other kid who was super nice, kind of outcast type kid, I told him about it and he's like, well, let's go hide. Let's go hide. And so uh, we would go out and this was fifth grade. We'd go out to the very corner of, of the field. Like, There's this huge field that, you know, people played soccer and everything on and uh, we'd hide. And and so basically I would I would ditch G every lunch for about a couple weeks. It made me super, super nervous, of course. But the fact that I had this kid that was kind of supporting me and mm-hmm. helping me and saying, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. And, and then I would go, I would see G uh, on the way back to class. Where were you? And, and I just said, I was looking for you. I don't know. I couldn't find you. I went to the library. You weren't there. And, and he would just say, you know, the next day it'd be like, okay, here's where I'm going to be. And then I would ditch him again. And, and I knew that wasn't going to work forever. But then at some point, one day he came and told me that his family was moving away that they were moving to another city far away and uh, I would never see him again. And that was probably the biggest relief I've ever felt in my entire life by far up to that point. I think I had a really hard time containing that. I think maybe I might have teared up, but I was it was tears of joy. Maybe right. he saw that as tears of like, oh no, I'm losing my best friend. Fine. He wrote me one time after that. I don't think I responded. For whatever reason, I held on to that letter and I just found it a week ago when I was going through my keepsakes and finally threw it away. Mm-hmm. It's... But so yeah, you, you got was, out of the relationship, but not by anyone helping you get out. Right. Not by... Not by using my own agency, my own power. Yeah, or having an adult intervene. It was just right. luck. Oh, just pure luck. Yeah, he just moved away, and that was the end. Then I immediately went and started hanging out with that kid, said, I wish your friend wasn't <laughs> abusing you. Right, but from four to nine, say, yeah. nine or ten. Mm-hmm. Those very formative years, this friendship taught you what it was like to be in a relationship. For the most part, yes. Uh, I should say that I had a strong, loving relationship with my brother that whole time, too. Actually, my entire childhood. And that was a relationship where I felt safe. And um, I think, in a way, that shielded me a little bit from from the G relationship in that that just helped me survive it overall. Um, but... Definitely, overall, that relationship with Chi was the defining relationship of my childhood. That kind of, because it, because of the lasting effects that it had on me, and, and the fact that it caused all of these lingering behaviors. So this was a relationship in which you felt constant threat, even threat for your life, and had you had to, and you felt threat towards other people. Yeah. And you had to develop behaviors to survive that relationship. Yes, and these were behaviors that did help me survive. I mean, I, I, I survived and without intervention from any adults or other people like that, I really, and not having any skills. I mean, I hadn't learned anything. I didn't know what emotions were even and how to deal with those. And, you know, so this is, you know, we refer to it be codependency behaviors being maladaptive. Yes. This This is what we're talking about. And I think it's important for people that have these behaviors to not feel shame around them because they developed in a situation in which they were appropriate. 
Right. It's not like people just one day go, you know what? I think I just want to care for other people more than I care for myself. It's, it, it comes from something, some specific either single incident or, or something like this, you know, this a series of traumatic, events. series of traumatic events attached to one particular relationship. So let's just talk briefly about the set of behaviors that became maladaptive as you went through life, but were appropriate for the situation that you found yourself in. And sure. That, that, that together form this web of codependency. Okay. Um, yeah, these are all the ones that I think came about from, from that experience. Uh, first of all, the feeling responsible for the emotions and actions of this guy. Which is really a kind of a cornerstone of codependency. Right. I mean, just basically managing him, managing his emotions, and managing his, his whole world. It didn't matter. I didn't matter in this in this situation because that was expected. It was expected, right? And it, it was violently enforced. Yep. If you were not attuned to emotions, right? And then there was caretaking, which is kind of pretty much the same thing, more or less. But but I mean, that's an important one because that that's that is also a cornerstone of, of codependency. It's, it's caretaking the person's emotional and physical and and right because your best best chance of feeling safe was to make him feel comfortable and cared for. It's a way of avoiding avoiding abuse. That as long as he's happy and comfortable and feels safe, then I, by extension, am safe. Even though it never worked out that way. Well, it I survived. You did. So <laughs> there we go. It worked, right? Um, I struggled to set boundaries because it was unsafe to have them. He saw no boundary between the two of you. Right. You, you were at his disposal. Right. And yes. if you tried to set a boundary, like by sneaking away mm-hmm. at lunch. That was ri- very risky. It was extremely risky. I don't. I really didn't have an end game for that plan. But mm-hmm. you know, I'm have no. I wonder how that would have turned out if he didn't move away. You know, I don't know. Then there's people pleasing that, which is these kind are, of in these the same are all, camp. Yeah, these are know? all interconnected. But it's all. It's it's it is it's slightly different st- still too. It's like kind of seeking validation and acceptance, and it, it's exploded out right because I. It, and, and this leads into the next one, low self-esteem and self-worth, right? So I just had such low self-esteem from from having no control over my life and feeling as though I wasn't doing anything I wanted and only doing what someone else wanted. So this people-pleasing, this seeking validation, whatever I can get, any sort of external source of someone saying, oh, you're a good person, you know, was just important for my survival. And then also trouble expressing my emotions because I never really developed how to express my emotions because I had to keep them inside. I was, it was unsafe to be angry. It was unsafe to be sad, sad, you know, or feel empathy. Yeah. Yeah. It was unsafe to feel empathy for other people. I had to, so this is where I learned compartmentalization and then denying my problems. So, you know, this was an awful friendship. Everyone knew it. There were, there were kids that pointed it out to me directly. And the best I could do would just, you know, when someone asked me directly once when, after I was beat up on the, on a field. Another, another child. Again, there were no, yeah, no another child. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why no adults saw me getting yeah. beat up, but she asked, why do you hang out with him? And, and my answer was, I don't know. That was it. Mm-hmm. And then loyal to a fault. I have to be loyal to this person no matter what. It doesn't matter how bad of a person this is. I need to continue to survive. And that means doing whatever this person wants to do. To reiterate what we said early in this discussion, we don't see codependency as a personality trait. It is a cluster of learned habituated behaviors, behaviors that can get you stuck in unbalanced relationships, often with others who are also disordered. Um, Because it is learned behavior, 
we think it is really important to figure out where those behaviors were learned, essentially what the origin story of the behaviors is. Understanding that origin has been completely key for me, uh, getting to the root of where it came from. And then that was a starting place for unlearning those behaviors and then putting something else in place, new behaviors, healthy behaviors. Your origin story involves the trauma you experienced in your relationship with G. And we suspect that a lot of people with codependent behaviors also have origin stories that involve trauma. So next episode, we are going to discuss trauma in more depth. How does it form? How is it different than other stressful, even violent events? What is it like to live with unhealed trauma? And we hope you'll join us for that discussion. Um, And if you have any comments or questions or want to contribute your own origin story, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching Codependent Mind. Thank you.